Good morning. I always have one little girl that says, why, why are you so loud? And that's just the way God made me, I think. That's the excuse I use anyways, and that's evident in my son, who is either you can't hear him at all, or he's really loud and in your face. So, uh, like Paul said, strap in, here we go. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 is going to be our passage for the morning, and so let's go ahead and just jump right in. We will read it, pray, and begin. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, we praise you for your goodness again. For yet another opportunity to open your word. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your spirit, your word would go forth and encourage, build up, convict, open eyes and hearts to see your goodness, to see your greatness, to see your might and your power, to understand who you are greater. Father, may this be a time of continued worship as we praise you for who you are and for who we are in relationship to our Savior and King Jesus Christ. Father, bless me now, I pray. Bless us we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is weird for me. I've got all kinds of thoughts going through my head right now. I'd never get the chance to re-preach a sermon after preaching it. And now everything that I did wrong, I'm going to correct, which is maybe a bad thing for you because we might be here a while. So if you brought some snacks, go ahead and open them. Um, <laughs> Back in March of 1998, I came to faith in Christ, and when I came to faith in Christ, that was about the time I started coming to church here. I began to coming to here as invited by guys like Aaron Frude, uh, David Martin, and actually I started going to a Bible study at Paul's house with other football players prior to coming here. Actually, the very first Sunday that I came to church, I didn't know that he was the pastor. And yet he'd been leading our Bible study, and he stands up in the pulpit, and I was like, oh, this is just too weird. You know, God had a plan, and he was definitely working in it. So the time that I ended up from coming to faith in Christ till I left here and moved to Kentucky, I spent about nine years here. Uh, spent a lot of time in the music ministry, setting up and tearing down at the high school. How many years were we at the high school? Like, yeah, so for quite a few years in a row, you know, Take the trailer, which was the contents of the church, unload it, set it all up, reload it, you know, rinse and repeat, come back next week. Anyway, so we spent a bunch of years doing that. The church sent me out to go to seminary. I went to the strangest place on earth. Um, you go from working concrete and building things with your hands to a place where guys didn't know what calluses were. And, you know, it's like, they, you see that? they would understand that that's a faux pas. I still don't, and I've been at this for 10 years. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you don't wear white socks with a brown belt. You know, you just don't do it. 
But I, it, it still doesn't register with me. I grabbed the socks that are on the top, put them in there because I don't want to dishevel what's underneath. Anyway, I went to seminary. It was like no other place on earth. And after some time, I felt like, as Paul's explained before the Dead Sea, I needed to get out of there. And I still wanted to finish, though. I wanted to finish what I started. And so that's when God put me into the ministry uh, to become a pastor. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Spent seven years in Washington, Indiana, pastoring a small church there. Grew up tremendously while I was there. Figured I was going to live there till I died, but God had other plans. And approximately three years ago, he brought me back to my hometown to be a pastor amongst the people that I grew up with. And the church does love me. And the town has not fully rejected me, at least most of them anyways. Um, but I still preach Christ everywhere I go and am thankful one of the things that has become, I think, and hope will continue to be such a hallmark of my ministry is the same thing that is a hallmark for your pastor's ministry, and it is to preach the word. It is 2 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 4, verse, uh, yeah, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. And in that passage, it talks about preaching the word in season and out of season. It talks about the fact that there will be those that, that have itching ears that want to store up for themselves preachers that speak satisfying things. Well, I'm not going to preach satisfying things unless you love Jesus, unless the Spirit of God is in your heart and He resonates within you the Word of God. Because that's what's most important is preaching that Word. One of the things that kind of sticks with me with, with Paul is like maybe the second or third time I met him, he asked me how my day was. We're, we're coming into Bible study studying the book of Romans. Asked me how my day was and I just kind of really candidly not really upset about it at all. It was just kind of a normal thing in my life. Yeah, I got in a fight today. And, and I, you know, expressed to him the ill deeds that I was going to do to the fellow later. Wade Hampton has been on the end of that conversation with me many a times. Because Wade discipled me for years. And it was like a regular occurrence of me wanting to shove something down somebody's throat. And I wasn't just talking about proverbially. I just, I wanted to have my fist touch somewhere down in the bottom of their stomach. And, and Paul just ever so gently and kindly opened me up to James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. We read it, and then he asked me if my attitude reflected what the Scripture, you know, reflected. I said no, and he asked me if, if this was something that a Christian, if this was a Christian attitude, and, and I said no. I took it under advisement, and from that point on, God began to work in my life through the Scripture. You see, Paul preaches the Scripture as I hope many of us in this room do, in season and out of season. That means, in my mind, in the pulpit and out of the pulpit, whenever and wherever. That's what we do, that it becomes the parlance of our people. We begin to speak the scriptures. They ooze from us. Was it uh, Spurgeon that you quoted from this morning that said, when, when I cut my people, I want them to bleed Bible. That it, it needs to be so infused in who we are that it becomes how we speak and how we think and how we act. And so the proclamation of the word is not necessarily going to be bringing you to line and verse like I'm going to do today or like your pastor does, but it is going to be the very lifeblood that we have, that when we speak, we speak the truth of the word, preaching it, proclaiming it, and speaking of Jesus Christ. That is a hallmark of this ministry. I pray that it is a hallmark of my ministry. It is something that is indelibly stamped upon me, and I hope you as well. And as it is, there's going to be people who don't preach the word. I remember Paul used to talk about up here, people who didn't do it. And, and I really, 
I didn't have any context for what that meant or what that looked like. I had no experience other than this church, other than you people who I don't know many of you, but now you're my people. You're, I'm, I'm with you guys. I, I love Paul. I love this place. I love you people. I, I relish the opportunity to preach the word to you, but this was all I ever knew. I didn't know what it was really as a Christian. I mean, I kind of knew some weird stuff growing up, but that was just weird and religious. Um, but, but to actually hear people say, oh, no, we preach the word, but then don't was something odd. I had my first experiences with that when I became a member of another church. And then after becoming a member of another church, I then went and became a pastor of a church and at the first annual meeting of the association, they have the youngest and newest pastor preach. And at first I thought it was a great honor. You know, oh, they've recognized greatness. No. No, it was a cruel joke, actually, because they put the newbie up there, the youngling up there, basically so they didn't have to listen to him. And that was kind of the compliments that flowed afterwards. I preached, though, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Preach the word. Preaching with every bit of fire and vigor that I could muster as I opened the word of God to them, just left it all out there. And we were supposed to go eat lunch afterwards, and I did worse to them than probably I'm going to do to you today. I gave it to them for like 45 minutes. And they came up to me and gave me the pat on the back and said, good job. We, we love to hear that. And I thought, oh, this is my place. This is my people. They love this stuff. And every year to follow at that same association meeting, the newbie came and preached that same passage, that same message. So four years in a row, they got the same message. I mean, God was trying to tell them something, I do believe. They didn't get it, though, because what I began to experience in my time there is they would give a head nod and a harumph to what was going on, but they wouldn't actually submit there to the Scriptures they would say we need to preach the word of God, but what they would do was seek to find the newest practical method available to them. The very thing that would get results because what was lauded, what was championed, what was praised was buildings, budgets, and baptisms. If you were Dr. Big Britches and you were able to have particular results of, of your ministry, able to somehow manipulate them so that the people at the meetings thought that you were special, man, you were promoted, you were held up front, and you were told, well done, you're doing it right. But guys like me, pastoring churches that went from, I think it was like nine people to 30 people, oh man, it's growth. Um, no, just all the people came out of the closets and were like, oh, we come to watch the freak show and then they stayed around. You know, I, I, they, they didn't look at my ministry as a good thing because it was small. But I didn't despise the day of small things. I preached the word of God with faithfulness, much like Paul has and does. And as I do that, my encouragement to you as we're going to do that is to celebrate that reality and then do it. You see, one of the things, and I didn't get to this in my other sermon, um, but I've got time. Anyways, maybe not that much time. Anyway, this is not just something that the professional does. This is not just something that Paul alone does, that I alone do. This is something that we can do. It is something that my wife does to and for my children. It is something that we do in and with our neighbors. Wade Hampton has preached the word of God to me more than probably anybody here in a one-on-one -on -one basis for hours on end through my thick skull. 
It is something that we can rejoice in together. So rather than continuing to talk about it, let's actually, let's actually do it, okay? Because I can sit up here and be like them forever and talk about the gospel, but not actually preach the gospel. Talk about preaching the word, but not actually preach the word. So let's preach the word. Let's, let's hear it. Let's read it again, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, why would I choose this passage to bring to you today? and then tag it with an introduction about preaching the word. It's because when we look at this passage, these are not things that we will come up with on our own. We are so self-centered as human beings that this is not a theology in which we would create as humanity, louding and praising and rejoicing and exalting in a God who is all, well, just all too far beyond our understanding and grip. We would not make this stuff up. And so I wanted to bring this to you to show you something very in particular, not only about God, but about us. And so we must ask our question, why did, why did Paul write this? Because if we just treat this as something that is, well, let's say a religious platitude, if we just treat this as some sort of poetic praise, something that's coffee cup worthy. Do you know what I mean by coffee cup worthy? You know, it, or something like that would be on the bottom of a Thomas Kincaid painting. You know what I mean? That you put up in your office and go, oh, that's so ah, majestic. You know what I mean? It, it, this is not a religious platitude. This is not just a religious phrase that has no meaning and that is spoken at moments of triteness that people use to try and make you feel better. No, there's actual substance here, and Paul is writing this within context. The context that it sits in is Romans 1 through 11. And in Romans 1 through 11, we have possibly the most clear and the most detailed explanation of the gospel in the New Testament. This explanation of the gospel should be seen as one of the greatest. In my opinion, it is, and very many scholars it is. But very often it is feared and avoided by us because of its detail. We don't always see detail going along with clarity. We see detail as being something that's scary. And if it's not immediately accessible to us, we fail to actually dig in because of fear of it. But please, Christian, do not be afraid. Your homework for tomorrow is, actually homework for next Sunday is, read Romans, have it memorized by next week, and then we'll come and talk about it. Spend some time in it, meditate upon it. And see within Romans 1 through 11, one of the most magnificent just explanations of what God has done amongst men to bring man to himself. If we look at Romans chapter 1, this is Paul the Apostle writing to the people in Rome, speaking of his eagerness to come and preach the gospel amongst those people there. He had a desire to preach the gospel to them, and in expressing that desire, he then expresses the fact that he is not ashamed of that gospel. This gospel that many people reject, the gospel that many people ignore, the gospel that many people say that they preach, but they really kind of leave the hard and edgier things off. He says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. 
He is not ashamed of the gospel because what does it do? The gospel and belief in it displays the righteousness of God. This is the gospel that he explains to us. This is the gospel that he gives us. And where does the gospel start? At a very uncomfortable place. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. And then from verse 18 through 320, he then essentially tells, actually 323, he tells everybody in the world, y'all are sinners and there's nothing you can do. Try as you might with your religious might and your religious power, you are sinners in need of a savior. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're a young and old. Altogether, mankind has become worthless, it says. There is none who are good, no, not one. He explains that very clearly. But then from there, starting in verse 24 of chapter 3, he gives an explanation of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Expresses the fact that Jesus Christ became a propitiatory sacrifice. Write that word down. I don't know how to spell it. My computer does, and probably yours does as well. Look it up, and then you'll be able to remember it. Hopefully, Paul's most likely used it multiple times from this pulpit. Jesus Christ is the propitiatory sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins. He is the wrath-bearing sacrifice. That's what propitiation means. And this is what Paul expresses. This is difficult yet beautiful in that God justifies us by the work that his son Jesus Christ has done. Romans expresses this. He then goes in to talk about Abraham and how the promise was given unto Abraham, a promise that Abraham hoped in beyond all hope. A promise that Abraham trusted that, that expressed that he would be heir and, and heirs of the world and all that there is. This is the gospel message. Chapter 5 then expresses the idea of imputation. Yet again, another big word. Write it down, look it up. It talks about the imputation of righteousness in the midst of the imputation of sin. And as sin entered into the world, death entered in through sin. And sin spread to all men because all men what? Die. But it's not just the fact that imputation of sin comes upon man. There is an imputation of righteousness that comes in and through Jesus Christ. And this is grace. It is the grace in which we stand by the power of the Spirit who has been given unto us. And as that Spirit of God has been given unto us and we have been given grace and are recipients of grace, this is not something that is to be treated trivially. It is not to be treated tritely. And that's why he goes into chapter 6 and says, Shall we continue on sinning that grace may abound? Because that is very often how the gospel in our America, in our Western world is treated. I can believe in Jesus Christ and then do as I please. I can get saved and live like the devil. The Romans will have none of it. And in chapter 6, he says, just because we have grace doesn't mean that we can continue to sin as we please. And it talks about having been taken out of the dominion of law and death and being brought into the dominion of life and light in Christ Jesus. And how, yes, we are going to struggle with sin. Chapter 7. This is going to be difficult. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. But praise be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I believe that expresses the difficulty that we have as being redeemed and yet not fully made into the likeness of Christ. Because we still deal with sin, right? 
We still deal with the difficulty and fallenness of our humanity, and yet we are saved as we are ever going to be. A magnificent and difficult thing to get, and I believe that's why he goes to chapter 8. Because at that point, we, we might be struggling with assurance of salvation and, and the, the assurance and knowledge that we are truly and genuinely his. But he goes through and he talks about the work of the Spirit and the life of the believer and how we have been redeemed, how we have been changed, how we are no longer slaves to sin and no longer slaves to disobedience. We no longer owe them anything, but it is by the Spirit that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That our salvation in him is secure. And then from chapters 9, 10, and 11, he goes through and he expresses the idea that the promises of God have not failed. Because just think, if you were an Israelite, just think if you had trusted in the promises of God as given in the Old Testament, and things are just not working out like you planned, or like you thought they were going to. And so what does he express right there in chapter 9? It's not as though the word of God has failed. It hasn't. And then he goes through in detail and explains God's plan for his people and explains how he works in and through salvation. And that's what leads us to this. Because even though chapter 9, 10, 11 are clear and detailed, when you get to verse 33, not all the problems are wiped away. It's still difficult. Not, not all the questions are answered that you want to be answered. It is still a rough go at times. But, but, as we come and we read what is written there, it becomes an expression of praise. And it's not just a, a random thought that kind of falls out of Paul's mouth. Sometimes that's how it's presented. As if he just couldn't handle himself anymore. So in the, the prose of the day, in the modern hymnody, at his time modern, it would be old for us. Anyways, in the hymnody of the day, he just kind of shoots out there this praise that doesn't really mean anything. That's not what it is. And it's not as, Paul, as though Paul is a poet, gathering bits and pieces of information, just waiting to find the right place to put it into his literary masterpiece. That's another thing that kills me. Here's, my, here's a pet peeve. Commentators. I've read way too many of them. And they always express these weird and languishing things. Like the fact that this is a literary masterpiece. As if Paul were Shakespeare trying to establish his position in history as a literary genius. No. He was a servant of God carried along by the Holy Spirit seeking to honor and praise and bring glory to the one who gives life and is life. He's not sitting there trying to be literary, nothing. He's writing the very word of God and expressing the things that God would have us to know, which leads him to this place of doctrine-filled worship and praise. Doctrine-filled worship and praise that we can rejoice in. And so let's dig in now. We're actually going to be preaching the word now. Everything else has just been commentary. Maybe. Verse 33, after everything that came, chapters 1 through 11, he exclaims, oh. Now, the way I just said that was kind of lame. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an oh, the depth, 
There's an exclamation point. If you're not a good reader, go to the end of the sentence, look for the exclamation point. And this is a statement of excitement. It's not like so many of our lame modern worship lyrics and you, oh, 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 we're not the Beatles. We're not trying to entertain people. Oh, the depth. And that's, I get stuck right there. This is, in the expression of that word, deep, it is pointing to the inaccessible nature of what is there. Because I don't like to go to the deep end, do you? It's scary to go way that far down in the water. And especially when you go to like a lake and you really think about how far down it is or the ocean and the depth there, it becomes a weighty, heavy, dark kind of a thing that is hard to access. Oh, the depth of the riches and the depth of the wisdom and the depth of the knowledge. All of this is coming after God is expressing through his servant Paul how he relates unto mankind. He goes through and he expresses the good news, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he says, oh, the depth of his riches. I believe those riches are not just of worldly possessions and things, but of his mercy and his grace, the gifts that he gives unto mankind in and through redemption. Oh, the riches the depth of his riches, the unsearchable nature of his riches, the inscrutable and mysterious nature of his riches. You know, I remember being in college, you'd be around some atheists or, or some doubting folks and they would ask questions about God. And, and they would kind of ask questions of God in such a way that Really, they acted like they could understand who he is. They acted as if God was on trial before them. God is not on trial before anybody. God, God is not one that has to sit here and answer to mankind. And I believe that's what he is talking about here. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He continues on to express what I've just said how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. They are past finding out. God is not one who owes us an explanation of himself. And that is why I believe Paul comes to this place and says, oh, the depth of his riches. Why? Because he has expressed himself in and through the person of Jesus Christ so that the unsearchable may become searchable, so that the unknowable may become known in and through Jesus this is what he's expressing. God owes me nothing. God does not owe me an explanation, and God is not accountable to me, nor is he to you. Do you see why I say man would not come up with this? Because I said it like I said it on purpose, almost mildly offensive, kind of like a big old jerk, you know. And our humanity does not necessarily like that I actually had a man one time come up to me after a sermon and say, you act as though God is condescending to us in the incarnation. And I went, yeah, you got it. I'm glad communication worked here this time, you know? Because he is condescending to us. He is coming down from his seat upon high. Then God became man and he dwelt amongst us. Is that not Phenomenal. And the question is, is why would he do that? Because many people would want to say the, the opposite. Well, well, why doesn't God 
show mercy and grace and, and all these things to all these people? Why does he let bad things happen to good people? And I'm kind of the other way around. After reading the scripture, I'm like, why does he let good things happen to bad people? Because I'm bad people. So are you. So are you. We are bad people. And it is a phenomenal act of praise and worship to who he is where we express like Paul, why, oh God, have you shown mercy to me? Why have you given? I do not deserve this. You owe me nothing. And look at the depth of your riches and your wisdom and your knowledge. Look at the unsearchable nature of your judgments and the inscrutable nature of your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever said to God, God, you know the way I think that you should do this thing here is, is operate like this. I was actually in a seminary class where we had a student and the professor entertained this. I wanted to throw it out the second it was said. But he entertained the idea of could we be saved another way than through the gospel? And at first I was like, well, no, the gospel is the only way. But what he was asking is, is it possible, potentially, for God to save mankind through another avenue if he so chose? And that's just kind of like, that's like scrutinizing God's ways, isn't it? And doesn't it say they're inscrutable? God, there's got to be a better way we could do the gospel here. No! Don't come to seminary to have the answers. And there's seminary folks in here. All right, don't come to seminary to have the answers. That's not why you're here to become the one that knowledge will die with once you've obtained it all. As though you can scrutinize the ways and measures of God. It says right here that they are past finding out. They are inscrutable. So rather than questioning the gospel and thinking, man, there's got to be a more efficient way to do this thing, we should rejoice and praise God for the depth of what? Riches, wisdom, knowledge. And as we praise God for the depth of his riches and wisdom and knowledge, we see that, well, man can never put God in his debt. Verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? As we look at those rhetorical questions, that shows as much about us as it does about God. It expresses character of God and attributes of God very clearly, I think. But very often, I think what we miss in this is that this expresses our relationship to God as in we can't approach him like that. We can't hold him as though he owes us anything. We can't come to him and say, I did this, therefore you owe me that. We can't say, I've been a good person. God, you owe me this. That's not how it works. Very often we do that. When bad things come our way, man, I've been being good. You can't bring this bad to me. Is our God not in the heavens doing all that he pleases? Is our God not sovereign over all? And so even the little and, and most inconsequential situation, is that not from the hand of the Lord? How dare we say, I'm too good for this? Because that's what you're saying. I'm too good for this. I've done too many good things. Why am I receiving bad? means I'm too good for this. No, you're not. We should receive it from the hand of the Lord, trusting in his goodness, trusting in his might, and rejoicing in his power. The apostle continues and finishes 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, let's not just skip over that. Let's not just look at those prepositions and prepositional phrases and think that somehow they mean nothing, that this is the coffee cup part of of the, the passage. But here we have a very clear and particular expression about God and who he is and why we would trust him and why we would put everything in and toward him. First and foremost, for from him. That means that he is the originator. Everything comes from him. That means he is the one that ushered forth all of creation. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. He spoke and the world came into existence. This is our God. But he's not like the deists say that he just kind of wound up creation, booted it out there and said, have fun, boys. Be back later to see how you're doing. That's not our God. Our God is not only the originator, the creator. He is the sustainer and upholder. Hebrews 11 tells us that God upholds a universe by the word of his power. That is a magnificent reality that we are in the hand of God right now. Everybody do this with me. I'm having a hard time breathing today, if you can't tell. Do this with me. That was from God, not from me. God allowed us that this morning. Every beat of my heart, every breath that you take is from the sustainer, the creator of all things, the one who is intimately involved in our lives and to him all things go. So from him all things come, through him all things come, and to him all things go. As in all things are before him and for him is another way to put that. As in God is the end, he is the goal, he is the reason of all things. Everything exists for him. Everything that was created was created through him and for him. In all of our life, the chief purpose in which we possess as people should be for him and his glory, and not just a snippet of his glory, not just a head nod to his glory, not just the head nod that we give to the preaching of the word, but he is the epicenter and focus of all that there is. To him be glory, all glory forever. Not just for a moment, not just for a little sound bite, but forever. So what should our response be? How should we respond to this? My hope is that some of us are like, whoa, cool. My hope is that some of us are excited about the word here. But if it just stops there, if it just stops at the amen, because what is amen right there? It says amen. To him be glory forever, amen. That means truly or so be it. That This is the, yeah, this is how it should be kind of a thing. The truly, truly, thus say it is. This is the way it is. But if it just stops there, We are no different than the people of Israel. Because remember what happened when they crossed the Red Sea. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? I'd like to see something like that. Moses stand there, raise his hands up. The sea parts. Wet ground that was boggy is now dry. A couple million people walk across it. And it doesn't like pump or move or do anything weird like that. All right? And then chariots, a bunch of them, come down into it. And God goes, ah, I'm done. Kills them all. You know... I wouldn't want to be messing with that God, especially when I witness everything that just happened. And yet, not even a couple days later, they're like, where is this Moses and where is your God? Aaron, make us some gods. And then Aaron like, took their gold and went, well, threw it in the fire and look what came out. That's the excuse he gave to Moses later, by the way. It's very entertaining to read. Go ahead and read it. It's in Exodus. Days later, 
After seeing, amen, days later after going, whoa, that is amazing. Look at our God. Look at how amazing he is. Look at how he has delivered us. What were they doing? They rose up and played in debauchery, wickedness and rampant idolatry, worshiping two images, saying these are our gods. How often do we come to majestic and glorious passages like this? Give it an amen. Give it a, that's, that's awesome. Even get involved in the emotion of the preacher and, and go praise God. And yet as the week goes, our response is much like the nation of Israel. We rise up into idolatry and forget him. My personal prayer for myself, not just for you, but for myself as I've been preparing this message and reading this is that the word of God by the power of the spirit of God would take hold deeper and deeper into my own heart and life so that my response to this might be greater and beyond amen. It might make me worship with the beautiful reality that is there and that I might see that this is an expression of who God is, the God who is the water that never leaves me thirsty the food that will forever satisfy. This is an expression of the God who wants to be in relationship with me and he's inscrutable and unsearchable that he has a depth of riches and wisdom and knowledge that is beyond comprehension and he doesn't owe me anything and yet he gives me everything in Jesus. That is amazing that the unknowable has made himself known in Jesus Christ that the one that is so amazing and powerful has made himself accessible to me and to you. Is that not a thing of rejoicing and praising and thanking God that we might be able to stand and worship him with all of our might even tomorrow when the excitement wears off? Because there is a particular excitement that comes with seeing the Red Sea parted. There is a particular excitement to sitting here hearing the word of God preached in such a manner that very often we forget as we leave out. God, please, let us worship you because of this after now. I believe that religion can become the opiate of the masses. I undertook this year to read Frederick Nietzsche. Big mistake, should have never done it to put cancer in my head. It was awful. But Frederick Nietzsche said that religion is opiate of the masses. The people come in and they get a whoa response or an amen response or oh yeah, that's right, response. And if that's all that we're doing here is partaking of that religious opiate to try and satisfy some deep and unsatisfied longing within us, we're doing it wrong. This is not about religion. This is not about religious practice. This is not about showing up to church. This is about worshiping the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, living as though there is a God because there is. And he is as he is expressed in his word. The God who has given himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. The God who indwells us by his Holy Spirit and makes us new and different and something other than what we were before. Christian, my life and many of yours as well are testimonies to the changing 
power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit to modify you and make you different than what you were, to sanctify you in spirit and in truth. And so my hope and my prayer is that God would continue to do that work for you. But there's many of you in this room, and I don't know your hearts. I don't know your minds. But just by sheer probability, there's many of you in this room that don't know Christ in this capacity. That Jesus is not your Savior. He is not your King. He is not your Lord, your Master, your Ruler. He is not the one that resides over your life and holds grip upon you. That when His Word is preached, He draws you near Him. Don't delay. Come to know the God who is unsearchable and inscrutable. Come to know the God who is beyond expression. That is that's one of the greatest or, or the greatest challenges, the most difficult things I do every week. Let's get up and talk about God and all of his might and splendor and wonder and glory and grandeur and power and goodness that is unsearchable and inscrutable. Come and talk about him, tell people about him, and yet, week in and week out, I, I get this joy and I get to do it. And then, amazingly enough, amongst all of my tomfoolery and silliness and imperfections, people come to faith in Christ because they see him for who he is because through his word he shows himself. And in this we rejoice. And so, Christian, rejoice with me and grow all the more. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, come to him today. Believe, repent, and be saved. Father, we thank you for this morning in Christ Jesus that you have given us. We thank you for your goodness and your might. I praise you for this opportunity to open your word, to rejoice in your goodness. And I just beg, Lord, that your word would do its work for which you send it. That it would not come back void, but you would be made much of in the midst of all of this. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.